Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Lauren. Hello. Amelia. Hi. And Justin. Species live and die, often at the hands of other species, and that's just part of the natural order. But what happens when humans change that order and take matters into their own hands by culling species in the wild? And we're going to look at three examples of cars that the the science involved in sharks in Australia, badgers in the UK, and wolves in America. We're also going to look at bringing back endangered species. The science for this week is going to be the lovely city of Perth in Western Australia. Now, when you think of Australia, you think of dangerous animals. That's that's a pretty, like, safe bet. And it's right, we do have many, many dangerous animals in Australia. And sharks, though, are most feared out of all of our most dangerous animals. If you were to ask a random international visitor or international person what is the most dangerous animal in Australia, they'd probably list the great white shark first, followed probably closely by a snake and or a spider. And we've had some shark attacks in Australia quite recently, and that's led to some culling. Um, but there's some interesting stats on shark attacks, which we'll get into a bit sooner with the science. But that's why Perth, as this centre of this argument, interesting little development in science versus ethics versus morality and animal ethics, um, as is our city of science for this week. So, Millie, if you're at the top of your game... As a predator, you'll evolve into a really highly crafted killing machine. It means you'll be super efficient at eating anything that comes into your domain. I don't see how this is a hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> That's certainly true. You are a killer in your domain of science communication. But when we have animals like the shark, they can seem really menacing, mostly because of how adapted they are. And they are the apex predator of the ocean. And it doesn't come much more apex than the great white shark. Well, the great white shark is found everywhere, and everywhere it's found, it is the top of the food chain. That's right, and it is a monster of the deep. Great white sharks can quite often reach six metres in length, which is huge when you think about it. Bigger than my car. Now, when you think about a shark that size, it's bound to elicit all kinds of terrified responses from people. Justin, you mentioned they're on the top of the food chain, but what is it that's below them on the food chain that they're eating? Well, everything from seals through to jelly, to fish, other other sharks even, and unfortunately humans. They don't really mean to eat humans, do they? Well, I don't know. If you watch the movie Jaws, you'll see this malevolent shark going after swimmers at a beach. But the reality is very different to that. The most of the time sharks actually eat humans is that they get confused. Now, sharks don't have great eyesight, what with living underwater at all. And they rely on other senses, like their, their fantastic electro response to blood and other and fish and creatures. That's how they detect, detect things. But when you're looking up from the bottom of the ocean up to the surface and you see something on a big long shape with kind of little paddly legs on the side, that looks a lot like a seal. And to a shark, a seal is a lunch. Not a surfer on a surfboard in a wetsuit. And unfortunately, sharks often eat humans when they confuse them for their typical prey. They don't go out of their way to eat humans. They go out of their way to try and eat a seal, which they think will be an easy catch. Reality, humans are often a bit too big for a normal shark to really sink their teeth into, so to speak. Rather, a lot of sharks will take a bite of a human, realise that this is far too bony for a, for a seal. Also, and this is back out. a bit too hard. Yes, especially once they get punched in the nose. The sharks tend to realise, this is probably not a seal. I should leave. 
And so sharks have earned this reputation as killers of the deep, and unfortunately they have killed humans. Now recently there has been some shark attacks in Western Australia in Perth beaches, and Australia is actually pretty good at protecting itself from sharks attack. Well, we've had sharks in our environment for long enough that we know to sort of keep out of their domain and at the same time have nets to sort of cordon off certain areas of water for swimmers that sharks can't come into. That's right. So we keep our beaches safe by putting up shark nets, which actually stop them getting in very close to the shore. And that's how we actually make sure that we are okay. And we both are alive and well to live for another day. The problem is often when you get surfers going beyond those nets or in areas that aren't patrolled or aren't, don't have nets, that can lead to more dangers. Unfortunately, in the last three years, there have been at least seven deaths due to shark attack, which has been a little bit higher than usual. Okay, so I understand like um, having nets there is more of like a preventative measure. So when, when you've got shark attacks, I mean, that usually angers people and puts them forward to action against these sharks. I mean, are people by any chance starting to do things against sharks? Yeah, well, that's right. So in WA, they've actually instituted a coal um, for any sharks over three metres, which means the government is sanctioning any killing of sharks over three metres. And they're not doing it in any particularly licensed way. They're just saying, yeah, go nuts, have fun. If you see a shark over three metres, fish it up or kill it. And that's incredibly damaging. And environmental groups in Australia are protesting severely. And there's a number of reasons for this. The first is the likelihood of dying in a shark attack in Australia in 2013. There were two shark attack deaths. Okay, so to, to put that into comparison, there are 180 deaths in the workplace that year as well. 290 from drowning. 1,200 from car accidents. 1,900 from alcohol-related. 2,000 from skin cancer. Unfortunately, 2,300 from suicide. 10,000 from smoking and 35,000 from to things related to obesity. So in comparison with problems out there, shark attacks is actually quite mild in comparison. In addition to that, the Australian great white shark is an endangered species, so it's not like there's a lot of them out there right now anyway. That's right. Now, the great white shark is actually listed and has had its status changed from vulnerable to extinction to endangered with extinction. So that means it is likely to go extinct, and that would mean that the jellyfish would rule the ocean. And why that's a problem is that sharks are designed to rule over the ocean. They are the top of the food chain. And when you remove that top of the food chain, you basically reinvent the ecosystem. Suddenly, populations that were controlled by the sharks eating them overcrowd. They use up the food source faster than sustainable, and they basically kill off creatures that otherwise wouldn't have a chance to survive. So by taking out the sharks, you're actually messing with the natural balance that has existed for thousands of years and really creating a new ecosystem that may not be as suitable for the environment. I don't feel comfortable with the jellyfish in charge. Well, jellyfish do have a lot of risks as well attached to them, and they are just as dangerous. So you might, it's, it's not like you're trading one for the other here. So shark culls are being undertaken in Australia, and the statistics behind it, along with the science of endangered species, would suggest that they are unfounded. Better protection better monitoring and a careful approach to them would lead to sharks being better managed. And in fact, globally, sharks are an endangered species because they're often killed for their fins, for the supermarket, especially in, in Asia. The sharks around Asia are almost driven to completely to extinction. And that has led to the degradation of life on many of their coral reefs there. So it'd be sad to see Australia go the same way. So we need to take some care and responsibility when we consider things like culls, particularly for animals at the top of a food chain, like the great white shark. So, taking a step away from the sunny, wonderful beaches of Perth, 
to the other side of the planet where it's much colder, much wetter, and much greyer in skies. And we're, of course, talking about the United Kingdom. So for all our listeners who are over there in the United Kingdom, we're going to be talking about an issue that you're probably very familiar with, and that is the badger cull. Because no natural, ethical, animal rights issue is eliciting more fevered protest response on both sides of the spectrum than the badger cull in the UK. It is a major topic for discussion, and if you're a UK listener, you will know all about this. But it's quite interesting, because unlike in Australia, where we're looking at it, killing sharks to prevent human life loss. The badger cull is about killing badgers in order to save animal life. Well, the badger is a pretty aggressive creature. Is the badger going around and killing other animals itself? Well, no, unfortunately, it's not the badger going on a rampage. So it's not honey badger attacking a snake because it just doesn't care. No, it's not quite like that. And it's not a badger that's related with a snake or a mushroom like it would be other in other old internet videos. No, this, this, this badgers are actually spreading something much more dangerous and much more disastrous, that they don't need to bite a lot of things to spread. And this is, of course, tuberculosis. Ooh. So tuberculosis is a disease which is very crippling, especially for humans when we have tried to eliminate tuberculosis as much as we can, but it's something that is very hard to wipe out. And it's especially prevalent in animals, particularly bovine tuberculosis. So badger cull is also is about tackling the impact of bovine tuberculosis because badgers have been found to be one of the major causes of the spread of this tuberculosis from cow to cow. Are badgers going around biting cows? That's right, and they're carrying it with them. As a, as a basically as a vector for disease spread. Now, it's easy to prevent a cow from passing a disease onto another cow because they don't travel across farms. But if you have badgers roaming across the countryside, they're basically carrying the disease around and spreading it to all these animals. And we're not talking about small amounts of animals dying. This is large amounts of animals. Um, in 20, 2012, 28,000 cattle were slaughtered because of bovine tuberculosis. Well, when... Normally that would be slaughtered to be fed to humans, right? But we can't eat meat that's been contaminated with with tuberculosis. Well, that's right. And not only that, but these animals are suffering and dying. They're being slaughtered because they're incredibly sick, not because <laughs> we're, we're using them as part of, or part of the food chain. And that cost the UK taxpayer about £100 million. So not only is it harming the animals, not only is it harming the environment is also harming the economy because it's costing them money. So let's get this straight. The idea is that, well, badgers are spreading the disease, so we'll kill a whole heap of badgers and that should help slow down the spread. Well, that's right. That was the intention behind the badger cull. But unfortunately, there's been a lot of confusion in the way it is implemented, especially also the way it's regulated. Now, when they started off, the department responsible for this instituted a policy that was basically saying, look, they're going to take some scientific rigour and credibility to do some pilot coals in Gloucestershire and Somerset to really guide the process. But the problem has been that there's been a lot of reports of illegal shooting, poisoning, gassing, and all that kinds of interference by people taking the cull into their own hands once it got signed off, instead of the planned process that was meant to be undertaken by the government, which meant that the, the, the plans for the badger coal became much more out of hand and the problem, and this is where it gets people on both sides. So environmentalists who are concerned about the rights of the animals like the badgers are very angry at the cold because it's killing animals who have a place in the ecosystem. But farmers, having seen their cattle die, their livelihoods ruined, as well as trying to protect their, the welfare of their animals, have taken off them their matters with their own hand as well. 
which has involved both sides being quite angry and quite heated in the discussions. A lot of people have weighed in on this, including the famed biologist and naturalist, Sir David Attenborough, who we are probably all very familiar with. And they, many of these people have called for the end of the car, or the stopping of the car now that it started and got out, out of hand, to ensure that it doesn't continue to spread and continue to kill much more than they're actually expecting to. Well, I think a lot of people actually have doubts as to whether this will help the spread at all. Like, it would be an absolute waste if they killed all of these innocent badgers who were just going about their angry badger lives, and it didn't help the problem at all. Well, that's right. And the questions about the science relating to the actual spread of bovine tuberculosis from badgers has been called into question, and there is a lot of doubt about this. What it does show is that culling is not always a clear-cut issue. Sometimes the plans for culls can have the best of intentions and they can still go terribly wrong. So on this week's episode, we are having our Not Even Rocket Surgery section straight out of the mill. And this is a long-running YSA section where we consider things on the edge of science and ask, are they really possible? And if so, how exactly would you go about it? Or we just ask really absurd science questions. And push science to the breaking point. This week, we're going to be talking about something that we've all thought about at one point or another, and that's it, that is. If a species is getting extinct or endangered, can we bring it back? And if we could, what species would you want to bring back? Okay, Justin, you're saying two different things. You're saying, first of all, can we, like, bring a species that's endangered make it less endangered, make them more of it? Or can you bring back a species from the dead, basically? Well, I mean, bringing back a species from near near extinction is done a lot, especially in zoos. Mm-hmm. Um, they have zoo biodiversity action plans, or zoobaps, not zoobats, zoobaps, um, to help them reintroduce species back into the wild after breeding them in captivity. And that's fantastic. What we're talking about is going to be more about resurrecting lost species. So quick poll. Lauren, what species would you like to see brought back from the dead? Less species, more like entire group of dinosaurs. Why dinosaurs? Because I watched Jurassic Park and I know how great of an idea that is. Uh, Don't you mean how terrible of an idea that was? The whole point of Jurassic Park is that it was terrible. People died. Only because they brought back the raptors, you leave the raptors out of it, and just everything else worked out fine. I don't think you can like leave raptors out of being resurrected. If you like were doing genetic cloning to bring back T. Rex from the dead or other dinosaurs, you would soon find that raptors would be like, "No, no, we're coming anyway, whether you want us or not." And you just accidentally end up with a million raptors. I think that's what those movies have taught us. Well, okay, Justin, what would you bring back then? Well, I think that my answer is going to be quite interesting. There's a lot of mammals that are more recent that we actually have good tissue samples for. And we have good genetic code. We don't have to suck out the genetic blood from a fly trapped in amber like they did for dinosaurs in in Jurassic Park. We can go to actual animals that we have either stuffed copies of all cell samples or tissue samples that have been wonderfully preserved. And I would of course, choose the dodo. The dodo? <laughs> or the mower, either one. Um, and uh, the dodo is a famous flightless bird that was found in a particular couple of areas, a couple of islands, and it was hunted to extinction. And the mower was a large... Also flightless bird. Flightless bird, kind of carnivorous, kind of like a crazy cassowary emu thing that lived in New Zealand that was two and a half, three metres tall. Now, both of these birds are 
of course. Very interesting. A bit like raptors, I would have to admit. But the reason why I want to bring them back is dodos went extinct because they were hunted to death because they were so tasty and so easy to catch. Uh, a species not good enough to protect itself from being eaten. Like, what kind of... It's, it's, it's not exactly the best form of... Uh, evolution there. You can kind of see how they went extinct. Look, they like, evolved oh, themselves no. for a purpose. And we're that, too delicious. That purpose was being the best at deliciousness. But if they were too delicious to exist, is that really something you want to bring back? Well, I do. To eat them. Well, we've got farming down a lot better nowadays. I don't think the world is ready for this deliciousness. I don't think the world is ready for this jelly. That's Dodos and other flightless birds are birds that we have that went extinct relatively recently that we've got good records for that would actually wouldn't be too difficult to bring back. We could farm them like we farm chickens and other animals and have a delicious new type of food source. I think it would be a great idea. I'm for eating more different types of animals. So what would you bring back, Millie? I would bring back the ground sloth. It's like a sloth, but it doesn't bother with the whole going up in trees thing. Well, <laughs> I don't know, but in my mind, that's really what sloths are. Sloths are about two things, right? The first is being really slow-moving and lazy. The second is being in a tree, which goes well with the first part, slow-moving and lazy. Uh, the ground sloth was well related to the uh, modern-day three-toed sloth. They roamed around the ground and were actually the size of bears, large bears. I'm sorry, I remember looking at different animals in my books and stuff. This... This wasn't like a recent extinction, was it? No, no. Um, ground sloths were... Scientists think that they were actually walking around only 8,000 years ago. And they were like three metres long. That's huge. Yeah, imagine riding around on a ground sloth. Like, I mean, like for one, sloths are already great. So to have bigger <laughs> sloths that you can ride... I'm not seeing downsides here. Plus... Like, if you look at the skeletons, if you go searching for ground sloths online, you'll be able to see that they have the teeth of um, vegetarian animals. So they're not dangerous at all in that way. I still don't think I'd be riding a ground sloth into battle. Christian Bell would be really excited about these ground sloths because they would be coming to the party and she could ride one and she would be so excited. Ellen would have a fleet of these. You'd go to an Ellen show and be like, if you have a ground sloth, you can have a ground sloth. And they'd just be useful. Like, we don't need horses. We just ride giant sloths. No downsides. You'd be arriving to the party a little late, though. No like, downsides. Three years late. All right, so we have a couple of votes here. My vote is for a new range of delicious, amazing animals that are genetically perfectly honed to be fantastically delicious. Lauren is, of course, voting for... Dinosaurs. I'm sorry, I just I love Jurassic Park, and I want to bring back more um, predators. And Millie, what were you voting for? The ground sloth. <laughs> to, to make Christian Bell really, really happy. Now, we have one other option. Um, what is that? Well, Australia actually had its own species that went extinct not, not very long ago at all. It's called the Tasmanian tiger, also called the, also called the thylacine. So, because it went extinct so recently, like in 1936, we actually have quite a lot of genetic material from the Tasmanian tiger. That's right. We've actually got fetuses preserved. We've got bones. We've got skeletons. We've got cells that we've actually managed to keep in good condition. And we've got extracted DNA from the teeth, skins, dry tissues that the um, the museum, the Australian Museum, managed to extract in early 2000. So this would enable us, really, you know, to bring it back. And we have mapped 
if we map fully the thylacine genome, we'd be really able to understand how to bring it back and bring back a viable pup. It's probably the one that's got the best chance of achieving lack of extinction. So just exactly how do you go about bringing back a species from the dead? Now, obviously we know how they did it in, in, uh, in Jurassic Park, but let's talk real science. How could you actually go about doing this with actual science? So there's a couple of different ways it could bring back a thylacine. So what could they do, really? Well, one of the ways, which is probably the simpler way, is if we take the um, like the fetus of the stem cells from another carnivorous animal from Tasmania, the Tasmanian devil, and we basically strip out the nu the nucleus from those cells and take the the DNA from a thylacine and shove it in those cells as an alternate nucleus and just wait for it to grow within a Tasmanian devil's uterus. And so it's kind of the surrogacy method that was really similar to how they cloned Dolly. Yeah, yeah, it, it's almost exactly the same method. What's the other option, Laura? Um, another option would be, it's more of a long-term method, it actually involves splicing in the genes. So rather than just dumping out all the previous DNA and like creating a whole new um, cell completely with the thylacine DNA, what you would do would you um, would be that you would take the Tasmanian devil DNA and slowly splice in little bits of the um, thylacine DNA, and you would do this over generations. So you, you basically have one generation splicing one gene, let it breed, spot, and have the next generation splice in another gene. So it's much more a careful and considered approach that would sort of slowly get to a thylacine through just slight modifications. And in the middle, we'd have these wonderful chimeras. <laughs> thylacine devils? Tasman so the problem is the Tasmanian tiger and the Tasmanian devil. So it would basically be a devil tiger or a diver. Or a tival. Tival. Let's run with tival. All right, so that's how you bring back an animal from the dead, explained in our Not Even Rocket Surgery segment. A reminder, if you want to ask your crazy question, we've had what sports could possibly be in the Olympics, and we now have just tackled which animals to bring back from the dead and how. Send in your answer, leaving a comment on our Facebook page or at our website, ysa.org.au forward slash Melbourne, or on our SoundCloud profile page, or hit us up with a comment on iTunes if you got to us from there. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So this week we've looked at the intricate and difficult question of colour and how it's been done in Australia, the UK, and the not even rocket surgery segment about extinct species. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.